A quivering puddle of protoplasm was the words I used to describe how I felt after. Yeah. That's Triathlon Show, episode 11. Hello, 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 my fellow triathletes. Welcome back to That Triathlon Show. This is the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. And as always, I'm your host, Michael. On today's episode, I interview another pro triathlete. And this time, it's Cody Bills. Cody is a professional triathlete based in Ontario, in Canada. And he specializes in 70.3 or half distance triathlons. And the reason I wanted to bring Cody on is that I really like his background and also his approach to training and his openness about everything he's doing in preparing for races and competing at the highest level. So just as a brief bio, Cody studied physics at university and graduated top of his class. And then he worked for a couple of years as a consultant in environmental science. So he's a really smart dude. And, uh, but he was training for triathlons as well during his university time and, and as well as a, at a top amateur level when he was working and then eventually turned pro in 2014 after graduating in 2012, I believe. And Cody's results have been improving very steadily since turning pro and just recently, by the time this show airs in April 2017, he finished second in a stacked field in Ironman 70.3 Campeche in Mexico. I think that's how you pronounce Campeche, but I'm not sure, so somebody can email me and correct me if I'm wrong. Some of the main topics that we're going to cover in the interview today is Cody's self-coaching process, because he is self-coached, although he has a mentor in David Tilbury Davis that kind of oversees his training from time to time and, and keeps him accountable. But, but primarily he plans his own training, as many of you do. So we go into that and Cody gives his tips on how you can be an, a good and effective coach to yourself. And also, obviously, how he trains for 70.3 races and what age groupers can take away from the training of pro triathletes and straight up tips from Cody for you as an age grouper. So without any further ado, let's go right to the interview. So Cody, warm welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, great. So uh, why don't you take a quick minute to fill in some gaps on that intro, if there are any. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll talk a bit about how I got involved in endurance sports in the first place because I didn't just, you know, explode onto the scene in 2014 by any means. I got my first taste of endurance sports, getting pulled along in a toboggan behind my parents as they cross-country skied. And before long, I was shuffling along on cross-country skis as well. Later on at age nine, I was signed up for a recreational swim league locally. And so just a few practices a week with parent volunteer coaches, but I kind of got my feet wet, so to speak, with competition. And I really hated it. <laughs> I didn't sleep at all the night before swim meets, and I was a nervous wreck. And I found it to be a miserable experience for a lot of reasons, but I persisted with it. And uh, later on, I really started to enjoy competition running cross country in high school. I had some really positive experiences there. And that carried through during my physics degree in university where I ran for the cross country team at Queen's University. And after that, uh, I wasn't really a fantastic runner by any means. As in, in high school, I was maybe top six in the district and in university, I was, um, you know, not really any notable performances at all. But after I graduated, I decided to pursue triathlon kind of as a personal reward Rather than taking a vacation after this degree, I didn't enjoy too much. I pursued triathlon for a few years. And uh, right off the bat, I started to get some great results. And people, knowledgeable people around me said, hey, I think you could, uh, I think you could hack it as a pro triathlete. 
And here I find myself three years later, and it's just been deeper down the rabbit hole every year. And it's been quite an adventure so far. Yeah, and one thing that, that's worth mentioning is that you have a, a great website and blog yourself at codebills.com, which uh, a question that I ask on this show is, what's your favorite uh, book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? And for me, at least when it comes to blogs, I've, yours is definitely my favorite one because it's so in-depth. When you do write articles, uh, you go very much in-depth and you're very transparent about the training that you do and things like personal health and budget things for pro triathletes, how that works out. And it's, it's super interesting. And so I, I actually want to start off with a question related to your latest article, which was outlining some of your recent training blocks that you've done. And you mentioned an indoor training workout uh, where you were reduced to, uh, uh, what was it that you mentioned again? I need to look at my show notes. <laughs> a quivering puddle of protoplasm was the words I used to describe how I felt after. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so what did you do for that workout? Well, um, in that particular training block, I decided to focus on one really hard bike workout per week, and the rest of the week on the bike was pretty easy. Um, so this was about a little over a two-hour workout, and I'd warm up for about half an hour with a few 10-second sprints and a little bit of tempo, get all ready. And then the main set was three by three minutes at kind of VO2 power, so like 380 to 400 watts, and then three minutes of tempo, so for me, 300 to 310 watts, and then three minutes easy, so about three blocks of nine minutes. Then the next level up the pyramid would be four times two minutes, ramping the power up a little bit to 390 to 410 watts, four minutes of tempo, two minutes easy, so that's four blocks of about eight minutes. And then the last step of the pyramid was five by one minute, basically whatever I had left, so like well, well over 400 watts with five minutes tempo, and one minute easy. And so what this kind of simulates is like a worst case scenario 70.3 ride, you know, being around two hours in duration with extreme variation in power, like normalized power for the workout would typically be well over 300 watts for that two hour block. And it really simulates the very dynamic tactical nature that you see in a lot of pro races. It's by no means just a steady time trial on the bike. You're throwing down big surges and it almost looks more like an ITU race or a pro cycling race than just a steady triathlon type effort. Yeah, and, and it wrecked no, me every week. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that sounds really, really brutal. And you, you had no... Little, I'd say a little overambitious. Um, I learned from that. I, I did it four times, accomplished it to the T, but then got sick right the day after the fourth time I finished it. So <laughs> perhaps a little, little bit much on top of everything else. Yeah, yeah. And you had no, no breaks, uh, to clarify, in between those different uh, levels of the pyramid. They, they're just after each other immediately following each other? Basically just the main part of it is, is 90 minutes on the rivet, really going hard. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, that was just one thing that I wanted to, just for my personal curiosity, ask, ask you about, because I, I, I laughed when I read that. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway, so people should go and, and have a look at your blog because there's a lot of excellent stuff on there. But let's dive into the main topics uh, that I want to discuss. So these are things that uh, the listeners can maybe take away a bit more from and, and learn from. So let's start with your self-coaching. So you're self-coached, but you still use the mentorship of somebody to guide your training. So how does that work? Yeah, I would say the term self-coaching doesn't even strictly apply to me. I write my own training. I plan my own race schedule, drawing on this decade of experience that I was talking about. But I also consult a lot of people. And first and foremost, that's David Tilbury Davis, who's a British coach who's based in Texas at the moment. And so he coached me on a full-time basis for a couple of years. And this year around mid-season, I decided to, to kind of um, take the reins again myself in terms of writing my own training. But I'm still maintaining David's oversight. And I guess one thing I've learned that age groupers could apply is that Self-coaching doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a lone wolf. So even though I'm self-coaching now, I still draw on the expertise of lots of people like David, like a sports doctor I work with, like a business advisor I have. 
So all sorts of people have helped me out and I'm not just trying to go it alone by any means. The big challenge with self-coaching is that it's really hard to maintain an objective perspective. So I think the key thing is to institute these reality checks and those could be like benchmark workouts or having a trusted advisor such as David for me overseeing your training, you know, looking at your training peaks, telling you when you're going a little too far, for example. It's just you become so emotionally invested in this process that you kind of, you know, I guess for as a figure of speech, you can't see the forest for the trees. You're just uh, completely narrowly focused on what you're doing. And I also wouldn't underestimate what a long apprenticeship it takes to be a good coach. There's a reason that I, I continue to not offer coaching services, although I'm approached with them pretty regularly. I've had the benefit of dealing with some fantastic coaches and I have so much respect for what it takes to get there. So, you know, this isn't something, this wasn't like a half-baked scheme to start coaching myself again. I only just feel ready now after basically a decade in the sport to coach myself and not even ready to start coaching other people yet. Yeah, okay, that's a really good breakdown of, of how it works. And what do you, would you say is the the thing that's most challenging if you were to take the reins completely yourself would it be to uh, keep that objectiveness about your own training and would, that you would push yourself too much or not push yourself enough or would it be the actual planning? What, what's the biggest challenges basically? Well, the, the planning is a challenge too. The first time I thought I would go sit down to write out my training for a month, I thought, oh, this will take a couple hours. I've already given it some thought. I spent a solid four to six hours on my desk really carefully crafting that. And I have gotten more efficient, but I, I did underestimate the time and energy it takes to really coach, self-coach yourself well. But like you said, the main challenge, I think, is maintaining that objective perspective. It's just next to impossible when you're self-coaching. So it's almost like you have to cultivate these dual personalities where when I'm writing my training, I put on my coaching hat and then I'm very cold, clinical, calculating, rational, my training to the best of my ability. Then I switch gears, put on my athlete hat and just execute. And that's when I'm focusing on the moment. I'm very present and not getting lost in the big picture because that's the coach's job. So it's quite, it's a difficult uh, dual personality kind of line to walk like that. And that's why I'm really grateful to have David's help on a regular basis. Yeah, that, that's a really good point you bring up about the, uh, the time requirements it takes to really plan your training. That's something that I noticed when I first got a coach that I immediately basically bought back so many hours every single month, if not week, that, that I was spending before that planning my training because I'm kind of a training planning nerd. So I would probably be too too analytical about it and uh, second guess myself too much and so on. So yeah, just I think putting on a bulk at the cost of elite coaching these days, which can run, you know, several hundred dollars a month. But if you kind of break that down to an hourly rate and think about how many hours a good coach is going to spend on their athletes over the course of a month, coaches aren't paid a whole heck of a lot of money. You know, if you look at it that way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So moving on to the actual training that you do end up with and the structure of your training plan, you're focusing mainly on 70.3. So can you outline a bit for us how, what your training could look like for building up for a 70.3 goal race? So this has been quite a learning process. A lot of trial and error with myself and my coach over the last couple of years. And I guess there's a distinction between, say, the first race of the year coming off an extended off-season, quote-unquote, versus preparing for a race mid-season. So let's talk about the first race of the season, first of all. Ideally, I'd have like eight to 10 weeks coming off already a solid base of fitness, a very focused training, balanced training, not specializing in one discipline or focusing on it, building in my first race of the season. And so that might look like, for me, I'm learning maybe three to five weeks of a higher volume approach, coupled with some very short, punchy efforts, say like 10 to 20 second hill sprints for running or really high speed work on the treadmill, like under three minutes per kilometer. On the bike, maybe 10 to 15 second sprints, that sort of thing. So the next block, next periodized block would be three weeks of maybe somewhat lower volume, but more VO2 type intervals. So we're talking kind of that one to two minute range. And one thing that I've learned is that you don't necessarily want to be focusing on the same intensity range on the bike and the run and the swim all simultaneously. So if I'm doing a three week VO2 block, 
it's kind of too much to be doing VO2 in the swim, the bike, and the run. So it's better to kind of stagger these things and, uh, you know, pick one or two disciplines at a time to be really, really pinning it. So, you know, three to five weeks of higher volume with the punchy efforts, maybe three weeks of lower volume with VO2 type efforts, and then a further one to two weeks or so of more race-specific prep, so that tempo to threshold type range. So one thing I really learned is that I really don't spend a whole lot of time over the course of the year at those race-specific intensities like tempo and threshold. It's just a small fraction of my training over the course of the year. It's important, but that's not kind of the foundation of my fitness. And uh, I'd start a taper about 10 days out. So that's the approach for the first race of the season. The second, a mid-season race is an entirely different thing for me because I already have a fairly high level of fitness. And looking over my training over the past couple of years, a really interesting trend has emerged. I've noticed that five weeks seems, seems to be the magic number between two races mid-season. That gives me one week to recover, three weeks to really train hard, and then one week to taper. And that formula has led to my three wins over the last couple of years in 70.3. Each of those has been about a five-week walk. Seems like any more than that, and I start to get myself into a little bit of trouble with either losing focus or even getting sick, something like that, uh, just starting to grind. So it's interesting that that pattern for me of five weeks has emerged. I don't think it's, uh, you know, the be-all and end-all, but in my case, perhaps I haven't quite figured out how to do a longer mid-season block yet. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and also your point about not doing all the disciplines at, or focusing on the same intensity so in, a, in all disciplines at one time, that's another really interesting point you bring up and kind of in line with the undulating periodization that uh, more and more athletes seem to seem to adopt it uh, to me and and even even the thing you talk about not having too much race intensity just the really short and sharp blocks with race intensity over the course of the season that's also something that with the way i look see things from, from an outside perspective more and more pros seem to do that more and more and even when you look at the research available the polarized training approach basically at least for a 7.3 athlete, those, those race-specific workouts that you would do, those would fall kind of in the middle ground, whereas the VO2 would be the, the high intensity and the, and the base training that you do earlier with some short and punchy efforts. Those are the, the base so that also fits that build. That's some, right. I, I avoided that term polarized training because it is, it is very trendy right now. It's certainly a buzzword. Um, yeah. That does describe my training very well by most people's definition, having very high intensity efforts coupled with a lot of lower intensity, higher volume and avoiding that mid-range, but it's not year-round, you know. There are still yeah. periods where I'm definitely doing more mid-range intensities like I see in a race. So parts of the year are very polarized, rest of the year not so much. The key thing though, that you mentioned was it's very periodized. There's always a purpose, and the blocks are never really more than five weeks, usually about three weeks, and sometimes even just one week for a race-specific prep type block. So um, yeah. those mesocycles are nice and short. Yeah, that's a good point you bring up about uh, polarized training being a, being a buzzword. That's something that a lot of athletes seem to want to be saying that they are doing polarized training even though they don't even necessarily are doing it and don't seem to understand the meaning of it and also i would be kind of hesitant to say that it's a good approach for age group athletes because it seems that you really need a high volume of training so it's the most effective for professionals that have the ability to put 20 plus or you know 30 plus hours a week into their training whereas if you're an age group athlete doing maybe 10 hours of training which still is a lot for some then you would be left with just quite a bit of training that's maybe what people would have in uh, past years described as junk miles. So mm. I don't know. I think the jury is still out on whether that's effective or not for age groupers. But that is a really think- good observation. I mean, even I'm on even perhaps in the lower end, lower volume end for a pro at say averaging under 20 hours a week, like 18 or something over the course of the year. But that's still a very different game than someone who's just training under 10 hours a week. Yeah. 
necessarily just blindly apply what works for a pro like me to an age grouper. Yeah, good point. So next question uh, that I wanted to ask you is about how you use data in training. You come from a physics background, like me, actually. So that's interesting. You've been saying on your blog, and well, I've been reading your articles, obviously, and, and you are very analytical about your training. So, so how do you use it to your advantage in training? So there are examples of where I use data very intensely and other areas I don't use data at all. So in the swim, I'm always using the pace clock. Pretty much everything is on the pace clock with the exception of some easier recovery swims. Same with on the bike, always looking at my power meter. Nearly every minute of my cycling workouts are very tightly scripted with the exception of the odd recovery ride or some off-season, you know, relaxing type stuff. Likewise on the run, pace is very important. I'm looking at my watch. If I'm on the treadmill, I'm watching the speed carefully. The exception I would say is that this year, the bulk of my mileage is just made up of easy kilometers and there I'm no longer micromanaging my pace. I used to always go out and say, I'm going to run between, you know, 350 and 405 per kilometer on my quote unquote easy days. And that's not really that easy. <laughs> so now I've been, as I've been polarizing things more, I guess, I spend a lot of time running like 440 per kilometer, 430, even five minutes on recovery days. So I just run whatever pace I feel like. If it's not a, not a formal run workout, which I do a couple times a week, I'm just kind of running however my body feels that day. An example of where I don't use data is monitoring stress. I used to look a bit at TSS or other comparable stress scores. And there's even another system where you take your perceived exertion on a 10-point scale and multiply it by the workout duration in minutes. That's kind of an old-school system. Works pretty well, actually. But the bottom line for me is that I don't think there's a really good comprehensive metric that measures training stress. Each of them has their flaws. So it comes down to, I guess, knowing my body and a couple of fundamental questions. Am I accomplishing the training like I originally planned it? Or am I, you know, changing things around because I'm tired? That's always a red flag for me. And am I feeling good, you know, physically, psychologically? How's my attitude? How's my, how my, how's my sleep? How are my muscles feeling? That sort of thing. Those two questions, if I ask myself those on a daily basis, I find I get a much clearer picture of how things are progressing than pouring over TSS or something like that. And also is David on my case. If, uh, if David's harassing me, then I'm usually doing something wrong as well. I've looked into using heart rate variability, which I think is a pretty interesting metric. The problem for me is that I just don't think it's convenient to do on a daily basis every morning. There's not really good Android apps right now that don't need uh, peripherals like a you know, heart rate monitor or something like that. And I just can't imagine realistically strapping on a heart rate monitor every morning to monitor heart rate variability. And it becomes a lot less useful if you don't have it kind of on a daily basis. I've also stopped weighing myself. I used to weigh myself daily to kind of monitor, you know, changes in weight and hydration state and stuff. It's too tempting to either consciously or subconsciously start to try and manipulate weight and body composition if you're getting feedback from the scale every day. And for me, I just find it to be a little bit triggering. So I just don't weigh myself anymore. I know roughly where I fall in a five pound range or something. But the truth is I've done great racing at either extreme end of that range for me. So it doesn't really matter all that much. And for racing, so that's all to do with training. For racing, I really just use power on the bike. And even then I'm kind of letting the race dictate the demands rather than just watching a power number. Uh, I don't wear a pace watch at all on the run and just do what I have to do to get the best possible position. All right, so it's still pretty basic. You, you use the general devices for, for power and pace, but, but not too, too much fa fancy stuff. And, Very uh, basic, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And do you do any any sort of retrospective analysis of how you've been when you analyze your blocks, your past blocks, about how your intensity distributions have uh, looked like or, or anything like that in terms of power distributions, for example, over a period of a few weeks or anything like that? Yeah, I definitely I, I log everything very meticulously in Training Peaks, and David and I will both go over that at times just to identify trends. Like I was mentioning before, that that five week number that seems to pop up in all my best blocks. Uh, that was an interesting revelation that came out of analyzing old training data. But I don't tend to pour over old data or spend a lot of time doing that for the most part. I, I used to do a lot more of that, and I used to use more metrics and stuff, but 
I've gone to a higher level as a pro, I've gone back to sort of more fundamentals, I guess, just monitoring my body, even if it's just doing like 10 or 20 minutes of yoga at the end of the day to really be present, check in, see how I'm feeling. I find for me, that's a lot more productive than pouring over metrics, despite my real affinity for data when it comes to each of the three disciplines. Yeah, and I guess that the more seasons you get behind you and uh, the more training you do, you get to learn your body better and better each and every season. And, and that That's allows right, you yeah. to do that. Yeah, I, I think it was very valuable to spend more, have more focus on data to monitor training stress, for example, or recovery over the first few years of my career. But now I'm reaching a point where I'm more attuned to what's going on, I think. And that's you know been pretty hard won at the expense of a lot of mistakes over the years. Mm, yeah. So uh, do you have any key workouts, uh, like performance indicators that you... That you may mention that you have some of them, but anyone wants that you like to repeat on a regular basis to see where you're at? Huh. You know, I, I used to do like the formal 20-minute testing on the bike, and I've stopped doing that, actually. There is a local time trial series that I like to go out for, and uh, of course, the, the time isn't super relevant because wind conditions can change and all that, but looking at my power for that is interesting. In the pool, there are certain regular test sets that I do, but I'm not super keen on benchmarking. I find it to be, it's quite stressful, frankly. And I race, you know, up to 10 times a year, often all long course races. That's already a heck of a lot of racing. So I sort of shy away from race type situations and training. In fact, this year I didn't do a single open running race. Um, and usually I'll just, I'll just do a, a couple open swimming races or uh, time trials per year. And that's about it. I don't really feel the need to be, you know, pushing myself to 100% effort in training on a regular basis. Hmm. So do you feel that you can still tune into where we're at fitness-wise, but just based on workouts that are not necessarily benchmark workouts? No, yeah. no to, yeah. Absolutely. So I don't need to go like literally to 100% of failure, which is really emotionally shattering. Like that's a limited number of times I can do that a year. And I, I reserve those for races. I used to do a lot more than that in the pool. I'd be doing it on a weekly basis, you know, on a bike, on the bike, on a monthly basis and hopping in the odd running race as well. And it's just, it's just kind of exhausting on top of what is already a very heavy race schedule. So if I do, say, a swim set, like 20 by 100, a classic one, at 95% effort, I can get a pretty good sense of where I'm at, you know, what my threshold pace is, for example, or something. Okay, yeah, very interesting. So another question that relates to the age groupers, I would say, is so that what aspects of pro triathletes training do you think that, that age groupers can uh, take something away from and learn from that they are not necessarily doing the right way in, in general. Anything that comes to mind? Yeah, absolutely. I would say taking recovery as seriously as the workouts. So a lot of age groupers, I train with some of them, are fantastic about smashing workouts. Not so great about, you know, respecting their bedtime or <laughs> having a nap or something like that or having practicing good nutrition during the day. So that's equally as important. I think that's one of the main things that differentiates some very high-level amateurs I've trained with who work regular jobs, they're great at the workouts, but they can't, I guess out of, out of necessity, because of their, their more busy lives, they can't spend as much time in recovery, but I think everyone can, be, uh, can practice better recovery. Also, training with a purpose, you know, knowing why you're doing everything. I think it's a lot easier to follow things, follow your plan very meticulously and really put your best foot forward every day if you know exactly why you're doing something. And that's one of the reasons I love writing my own training is that I'm 100% accountable for knowing what each session, what the purpose of it is, I guess. And uh, also, I guess, being disciplined about sticking to the plan, following on that, with both within the context of workouts and within a broader context. So not, uh, you know, smashing your easy day because you feel good and then being tired the next day or not dialing back your big workout because you feel crappy or something. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Uh, the last one about consistency and, and the first one that you had about recovery and nutrition, that's actually 
a book that I would highly recommend for any age group triathlete is uh, The Well-Built Triathlete by Matt Dixon. And he has his four pillars of performance, as he calls them, which is endurance training and strength training and recovery and nutrition. Not necessarily in, the, in that order, because recovery is essentially as important as, as training. Workouts don't make you stronger. Mm -hmm. It's recovering from workouts that make, makes you stronger. But yeah, that's, that's a highly recommended book. And I'll link to that in the show notes for anybody that's interested in it. So, uh, yep, this has been very useful. So uh, I have just five more questions for you in the rapid fire question segment. So uh, short and sweet questions and uh, reasonably short answers. Okay. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Okay. So what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? Slowtwitch.com, online forums. That was like my first unofficial triathlon coach for the nonfiction side. For the fiction side, I loved uh, The Rider by Tim Crabbe, which is the most perfect uh, description that really captures the ethos of racing. What's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Oh man, that one's a toss up. I love my Ventum one. I just got a set of Alto CC86 carbon clinchers that are pretty sexy. And uh, I'm just trying out the new Skechers Go Run 5 shoes that just are coming out and love them. What's a personal habit that helps you achieve success? Napping, we already touched on this one. I'm a daily napper. In fact, I didn't nap yesterday and it was, things got ugly in the afternoon. What's your favorite race? Uh, this one's varied over the years. I'm going to say Niagara Falls Barrelman, which is not only a local race, very iconic, goes past Niagara Falls, of course, but it's also independent. And we're seeing kind of the death of a lot of independent races. So it's, um, that's, it's cool to see one thriving there. Oh, that sounds cool. Really cool. Uh, what do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some earlier point in your triathlon career? The ability to keep it in perspective, that's really important. You know, a bad workout, a crappy race, even a rough training block. It's not the end of the world. So I'm getting better at kind of stepping off the emotional roller coaster and not being so caught up in each up and down. Right. Excellent. And uh, finally, tell the listeners where they can find out more about you. And uh, if there's anything you want to plug, feel free to go ahead and do that. So like you mentioned, you can check out my blog at CodyBeals.com. I've also got a Facebook page and a Twitter and an Instagram, but the website is a good place to start. And uh, a plug, I'm really excited about a company based out of Waterloo called Stack. Um, people may know them for their smart trainer at a very low price point they're developing, which had wild success on Kickstarter earlier this year. But the thing I'm most excited about is a concept called the virtual wind tunnel that they're developing. And I've had a bit of uh, input there over the last year. So it involves 3D scanning coupled with um, computational fluid dynamics analysis after the scanning. And it allows you to compare changes to position and equipment. It has some limitations, but in the future, in the near future, this could eliminate a lot of trips to the wind tunnel or the track for testing, and it could be done at a fraction of the cost. So virtual wind tunnel, look out for that, especially if you're in Ontario or Canada in years to come. That sounds super exciting, actually. Uh, yeah, the, it's awesome, yeah. The physicist in me is uh, going bananas. <laughs> it's, it's very cool. The, the, yeah. the stack guys are a bunch of mad geniuses, so any idea they have, um, watching them run with it is awesome. Yeah. I've had a couple of testing sessions so far, and it's already helped inform my position for the ITU Long Distance World Championships this year. Um, so it's already proving useful for me and should be available to the public pretty soon. Excellent. All right. It's been really great to talk to you, Cody, and uh, thanks for coming on. So uh, with that, uh, I think we're done for, for this episode. So thank you again, Cody, and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you very much for having me. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Cody Beals, pro triathlete. My main takeaways from this interview with Cody, first of all, I really really enjoyed the interview because there are a lot of similarities I, that I see between me and Cody with both having studied physics or engineering physics and, and so on, although he is at a slightly higher level than me at the moment. But I'm coming for you, Cody. Just give me a couple of years. 
No, seriously, the main takeaways would be that the biggest challenge with self-coaching is maintaining an objective view of your training. And that's why it's so important to have somebody else to give you some reality checks, even if you don't have a coach. That might even be just a triathlon buddy that you know is not afraid to to question some decisions and and give some criticism if it's relevant to what you're doing. So, so something to keep in mind, have somebody take an objective view at your training from time to time, because we can't be objective about our own training. That's probably the one greatest benefit that I've seen since getting a coach myself. And the point that Cody made about wearing an athlete's hat and a coach's hat separately, that one really stuck with me. I think that was a good perspective. When you're wearing the athlete's hat, you're just in execution mode. And when you're wearing the coach's hat, you're in planning or analysis mode. So having those two very different characters to switch between when you're coaching yourself or when you're executing your training. And that's very challenging, of course, but but that's something that self-coached athletes have to deal with if they want to train effectively. And just training with a purpose and know why you're doing what you're doing, that makes it easier as well for you to follow your plan if you have designed your training program so that every workout has a purpose. Another cool thing that Cody mentioned, it's been a while since I made this interview. It was uh, back at the end of 2016. And since then, I've written a blog post actually about the virtual wind tunnel that Cody mentioned, or that's part of the article. So I'll link to the article about exciting new products and technology in triathlon for 2017, where you can read more about that new virtual wind tunnel technology. So go and have a look at that. It'll be in the show notes on that triathlonshow.com. The next episode will be a Q&A. And since I have already recorded that episode, there isn't any more time for you when you listen to this episode to send in questions for that. But as always, keep sending in your questions and you can get them answered on pretty much any show where I decide that there is enough room to include some listener questions or on the next Q&A episode, because we'll have more of them, I'm sure, as listener questions keep coming in. So keep sending them in to michael at scientifictriathlon.com, and that's Michael with a K. And then finally, a little bit of promotion for a core training program that I put together completely free on my website, scientifictriathlon.com. I just got a, a testimonial from Andrew from Montreal, and that was, that's why I thought to include it in this episode, because I made a connection. Cody is from Canada and Andrew is from Canada, right? So, so Andrew wrote, I'm going to write my training plan for the upcoming year, and I was looking for core training and a scientific approach to overall training. This was the 12th site I visited in my search, and it's the only one I use. And he was referring to scientifictriathlon.com, of course. So you can find that core training program. It has three different routines for different levels from beginner to core training to very advanced with some exercise ball, exercises that require a lot of balance. But there's something for everybody in that. Just go to scientifictriathlon.com and under the headline become bulletproof, you can just click the button to access the program. Thank you for listening as always and uh, remember to hit that subscribe button so you automatically get the show when it's released. Until next time, keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.